This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com, and very happy that you're here with us today. One of the most important jobs educators have is to teach, model, and reinforce respect, compassion, kindness, and other pro-social skills. Doing that builds a school climate and culture where kids feel more connected to their teachers and to one another. It leads to greater emotional health for students and teachers alike, and it can create a fundamental shift in school climate, a kind of tipping point at which bullying and cruelty become a rarity. Not surprisingly, academic gains will likely follow. According to the American Institutes for Research, positive school climate is tied to high or improving attendance rates, test scores, promotion rates, and graduation rates. Better test scores and higher rates of student achievement are inextricably related to a school climate of kindness and support. In this part of today's show, we're going to be focusing on creating a culture of kindness, in particular in middle school. And we're going to be speaking with two educators who are both experts in conflict resolution and bullying prevention and a lot more very applicable things. And they've got a lot of great strategies for us, and by us I mean parents and educators, that we're going to be able to use to empower the kids in our lives to transform their classrooms and their schools. I'm Armin Brat, creating a culture of kindness right after this. As an 18-year-old, I let my mistakes kind of take over my life. I was 0.5 credits away from completing high school, and I didn't do it. Ten years later, at age 28, Jackie finished her high school diploma. When I found out that I was pregnant, I know that I had to do something for myself if I wanted to make her a better person and provide a better life for her. My family never stopped pushing for me to be better because they knew what I could become and who I could become as a person. My support team is amazing. The educational director, my sister, and even my seven-year-old daughter has just been more than the support that I could ask for. I've been given an opportunity, and I'm just thankful for it. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Krista Tanari, who's the co-author with Naomi Drew of Create a Culture of Kindness in Middle School, 48 Character-Building Lessons to Foster Respect and Prevent Bullying. Krista, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here with you. So let me start with, a, I guess, a counterintuitive question. If you're, you're saying create a culture of kindness... Are you suggesting that there's a culture of unkindness in middle school? Well, I think what we see is um, children trying out all different kinds of behaviors at the middle school level. And some of the national studies that have been done, as well as our own survey that we gave to 2,000 students at the middle school level, have shown that students report they hear a lot of um, name-calling and nasty comments, as well as exclusion 
um, specifically at the middle school level, and that it bothers them quite a bit. You've been doing this for a while, and so is your co-author. Do you feel that it's more unkind these days or less kind than in, in generations past? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I see two things going on. Um, one thing I see going on is specifically with respect to media, uh, TV, news, um, our political discourse. It seems that that has gotten more confrontational, and um, people use a lot of personal attacks. And so that seems to have gotten worse. And I think you know most people would probably say that that's been their experience. And I do think that has an impact on children. They are taking in that information just as we are. Um, on the other hand, actually, bullying behaviors, some studies have shown that we're actually seeing bullying behaviors themselves decrease. And I've been doing this for about 20 years, and what I've personally seen is that we have less tolerance of behaviors like stereotyping and meanness and nastiness than we had before. And we're, we hear about it a lot in the news. And in that way, that's a positive trend, that people really want to do things differently and are less tolerant of these negative behaviors and wanting to gain the skills that they need so that they can be kinder to one another. You know, it's an interesting contradiction, though, to have some people saying that there's a, a decrease in the kind of behavior. But, I mean, to, to look at the media, I mean, I, don't, I can't even give you a list of it, of shows, but, you know, America's Next Top Model and the cooking shows, and there's, there's just this nastiness that is so pervasive. And I know that those kids, those, those shows are especially popular with middle school kids who are, yeah, are watching that that's the way to behave. That's that's the way you handle somebody you don't agree with is you slice them to smithereens. It's, uh, mm-hmm. I think we're really seeing, you know, just bad role models and bad examples. Um and, you know, kids are not responsible for that, though. You know, we as adults who um, may watch those shows or who have those shows on or who may find that to be entertaining in some way, you know, we're setting the tone. And I think that we need to be aware of, you know, when a really good thing to do with your children is when you're watching a show like that with them is to just pose some natural questions, you know, about how a contestant might feel or how a behavior might impact someone and what they think may happen off-screen, you know, what we're not seeing. Uh, and that's a really good way to sort of mm-hmm. process and break down some of this media that's, that's thrown yeah. at us. Well, what would a culture of kindness look like in a middle school? How, how would people behave? And, I, and I'm, I'm asking that because I, I'm kind of wondering in some ways, you know, people say that stereotypes, there's a kernel of truth there or that, that sort of thing, that, you know, everybody knows that middle school kids are not, terribly nice to each other. So is is some of this a natural rite of passage that kids have to go through? Is it part of establishing their independence and separating from each other and their parents? Or can it be controlled? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's not the right way to think about it, that it's a rite of passage, because that would mean that we're accepting that it's okay for children to hurt one another um, as a developmental process. And I just don't think that that's necessary. Uh, We do know that kids try out risky behaviors. We do know that they become very concerned about what others think of them, that they're looking to establish their own independence from their parents. And, you know, they're juggling a lot of different things that they're navigating in new social groups. 
in a way that they haven't done before, you know, especially in the middle school age level when they may become interested in boyfriend-girlfriend or just um, romantic relationships in some way. It gets really confusing for them. And so I think that we want to understand that all kids want to feel like they're part of a group and they want to feel personally powerful, that they have agency in the world. And I think we need to be aware of helping them find their way in the group and feeling powerful in a positive way. All right. So the book is aimed mostly at uh, teachers and administrators in schools, but there's plenty of lessons here that we're going to talk about that apply to parents as well. And one of them is training your brain to be more compassionate. Talk about what's, what's going on there. Sure. Well, you know, Naomi and I feel that it's very important that we actually teach kids about their brain and um, that their brain can change. So one of the things you hear a lot about in education circles is this idea of a growth mindset, that our brain is not as fixed as we once thought it was, that even things like intelligence and personality are not as fixed as we thought they were. We can change them. And so this idea of growth can be applied to social-emotional skills such as empathy, communication, you know, understanding other individuals. So in the lesson, Train Your Brain to Be More Compassionate, what we're really doing is helping kids understand this thing called neuroplasticity, which gives us the power to change our brains through our own will, through the actions that we take, and even mental practice, which is really a fascinating concept. So if we want to help children, you know, be more kind to one another, one thing we can do is help them visualize what it means to be kind and visualize compassionate actions that they can take and actually do mental rehearsal around that. And that actually starts to create neural pathways that can be helpful to them in real-life situations. I think it's such a really powerful idea. Actually, that applies to all of us, uh, you know, through the age span. You know, I think intuitively we all know that we're supposed to respect differences and that we're not, we're not supposed to pick on people who are different than we are and we're, we're not supposed to bully people. I think that, that, that everybody would probably say, yeah, that, that's correct. So what is it, though, that, that's happening where some, the messages are not being delivered somehow? How is it that kids are getting the idea that it's okay to do things that they shouldn't be doing? Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, you know, I think that people want to find their place, where they fit in. And uh, we naturally put one, you know, each other in categories to try to find out where our safe place is. And some of the lessons, actually, that we have in the book are around the concept of understanding that making assumptions about other people and stereotyping other people is sort of a natural function of our brain. It helps us understand the world. But when those assumptions and uh, stereotypes are negative and have us placing value judgments that some people are more worthy than others, then that's very problematic because it leads to, you know, behavior that's, that's very harmful. So we work with kids to understand that we're alike in some ways, but we're different in others and that differences are very exciting and they can really add to, you know, wonderful qualities of a group and that we shouldn't uh, jump to conclusions, you know, about people until we really take the time to get to know one another better. And so it's a powerful exercise to, um, you know, question our assumptions. Well, how is it that that differences are exciting? What do you tell somebody? when Because you you say something like, oh, differences are exciting, and somebody says, yeah, really? 
Well, I try not to tell them. I get them to think of ways that differences are exciting, okay. right? Okay. Because um, uh, kids actually know, middle school students know, you know, that uh, they'll learn new things that they might be interested in by talking to someone else about their interests that they'd never thought of before. Um, so, actually, a lot of these lessons have kids come up with the responses. Once we can ask them the right questions to really think about a time where maybe differences um, helped make a group better or helped them maybe solve a problem they didn't have an answer to, but someone else did because of their different experience in life. Um, and so we can talk to them about these issues and have them come up with really good solutions to these problems. I'm talking with Krista Tenari, who's the co-author with Naomi Drew of a book called Create a Culture of Kindness in Middle School, 48 Character Building Lessons to Foster Respect and Prevent Bullying. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking to Krista about some specifics here, some specific lessons and some of the things that we can do as parents to help facilitate some of this stuff. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. I'm in almost every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. Take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock. If you're just joining us, talking with Krista Tenari, who's the co-author of Create a Culture of Kindness in Middle School, and want to get into some of the lessons. We, we touched on a few of them briefly, but um, about the, the idea of celebrating uniqueness and accepting differences. That's a whole section. You've got, oh, it looks like, seven or eight different lessons in here. So how do you, what's something that you do in the schools that we might be able to do at home to encourage celebration or at least understanding of differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of the things is we do some pair-share activities, and we get um, children to talk about their experiences. So was there ever a time when someone treated you a certain way because of a perceived difference? You know, and uh, you could share your experience, and I could share mine, and we could gain a little insight as to how differences um, 
might impact us and begin to develop some empathy around those issues. Um, we might also try to make some guesses about one another. For example, Armin, do you think that I am a, a, a morning person or a night person? Just take a guess. Oh, you sound like a morning person to me. And why did you make that assumption? You sound so happy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have no idea why yeah, I made yeah. that assumption. Right. It makes, yeah, it's, it's completely interesting. So actually, I'm not a morning person. Uh, I, <laughs> okay. I have to try to get myself out of bed several times in the morning. I, I, uh, I actually gain energy throughout the day. And uh, my time now here, it's a quarter to seven. So it's a little later in the day for me. I'm on the East Coast. And um, I, I sound peppy to you, so you thought perhaps I was a morning person, but that was an incorrect assumption. So um, that's a very uh, low-risk question, right? It doesn't really have a lot to do with my identity. Uh, right, but it's a, sure. So what about my, um, my ethnic background? Would you take a guess about that? Well, if I hadn't seen a picture, um, but I, you know, I would say Tanari, that sounds roughly Italian, possibly ends with an I. Mm -hmm. um, but there may be something else in there. Okay, not... so um, use some information that you, ha that you have already, some knowledge about names to make that guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was good. That was a, a guess that uh, I am Italian. Um, both of my parents are Italian, but I could just as well have some other influences in my background as well, right, that you might not right. have well, known about. That could um, be that could I... be your married name, and you could be Polish or something else. It, it's... Sure, yeah. right. So, but the exercise is fun because it helps us understand how quickly we make these assumptions about people. Without really having full information, we use partial information. And uh, when I've done this exercise with kids and students, I really enjoy it because what it does is it kind of creates an even playing field. You know, we're not bad people because we're making assumptions. It's just what our brain does. Um, but we need to recognize we might be wrong. And so, you know, the only way to find out if we're wrong or if we're right is to have a good conversation with someone and be willing to listen and take in new information about who they are and what's important to them. You know, you talk about social groups and cliques, and that's certainly something that comes up with what you talked about before, about people generally kind of heading towards groups of people that are like them. Yes. But yes. Th there's a problem. I mean, that's that's the natural thing. I think, you know, you, you can see that in nature. Zebras tend to hang out with other zebras and giraffes hang out with other giraffes. And every mm -hmm. once in a while you get some some crossover. And so it, it makes sense as animals that we would be gravitating towards people that look like us or that sure. at least come from similar places that we do that have something in common. But there's a difference between that and being exclusive, Yes, absolutely. We have a lesson in the book called Social Groups and Cliques, and I think um, it's very important to help students understand when their social group is something that's positive, that allows students to come and go into that group. You know, students in that group enjoy each other's company. They support one another. They're given freedom to really be who they are in those groups. Uh, and then it sometimes can change to a clique. So a clique have, you know, they have some negative characteristics, some positive ones as well, but the negative ones are that students within cliques are often discouraged from really being themselves. They're encouraged to be really just like the others in that group. And then other students might not be able to join that group very easily, uh, so it's excluding others. And 
people in that group might feel pressured to do things in order to retain their membership in that group. So parents might want to listen to how their children are describing their friendships and talking about the group that they're in. Mm-hmm. And if they're mentioning things like, well, if I do this, I can't be part of this group anymore, that's a red flag that that social group might really have turned into a click that might be putting some pressure on your child you want to be aware of. So you want to be able to have that conversation with your kid about, hey, is this you know, what's going on in this group? Are you feeling comfortable? Do you get support from other friends in the group? What about when other kids want to join? Is that allowed? Or is there some kind of a, you know, hazing process that happens if kids want to join or leave the group? And um, if so, that's, that's something that you want to help them understand is not healthy. You know, I do want to spend a few minutes. We only have a couple minutes left, but talking about bullying, and there's so much information that's out there and so many different ways of looking at it, and some people say zero-tolerance policies are good, and other people say that they're terrible. But you have some, some specific strategies. How do you, what do you tell kids who have been bullied about what to do? I mean, there's, you're going to start off by saying, I don't like that, don't do that, and you're going to escalate by telling the teachers and stuff. But at some point, the kids are, are got to handle it themselves, or they're in a position where they're going to have to do something. Sure. One of the things we know about bullying is that a lot of it goes on um, out of the earshot, out of the eyeshot of adults, right? And so we, we do know that we want to try to prepare kids for how they can deal with these with these bullying behaviors. But something else that we've learned is that bullying actually rarely occurs one-on-one, meaning that there's often other kids around. Because kids who bully like to have an audience, you know, because it gives them a bit more social power. And that's one of the things that kids who are bullying look for is that social power. So one of the most powerful ways that we can actually decrease this culture of bullying and increase a culture of kindness is to prepare not just the kids who've been victims or those who are bullying, but all students into how they can stand up for and interrupt bullying behaviors. So one of the things they can do, of course, is just to say, that's not okay with me, stop that, you know, those types of confrontational things. But actually, there was a wonderful study done by Stan Davis and Sharice Nixon Nixon, called the Youth Voice Project. And they looked at kids who were victims of bullying behaviors, and what they found is what was most helpful to them was receiving support from other kids who were around. Hmm. And support can mean something as simple as a text later on in the day, saying, I saw what happened, it wasn't right, are you okay? Um, And those kinds of helping behaviors were like a protective shield around these kids who tended to be targets because they were able to then feel supported by a larger group of kids and then, you know, begin to gain more of that confidence and more of that social safety net that is really so useful. Well, it seems like it also gives kids who don't know how to respond, who are, who are spectators, a way to actually do something productive. Because I think a lot of kids feel they're watching things and they say that it's wrong, but they don't want to say something because they don't want to be the next victim. And yeah. so you have a bunch of people who are bystanders who just let it go. But if you're, that, that's a, a fascinating thing. If you're saying, look, if you can't physically get in there and, and there are perfectly legitimate reasons why you can't, then this is something that you can do to help. Absolutely. Everyone can use support strategies um, to really help change that climate. Every kid. 
That's fant- fantastic. And do you find that that, that comes as a, an eye-opening aha moment for kids? It really does. And actually for adults, too, and parents when I'm doing training just did for me. It. Yeah, so many years we've just been told, say something or walk away. You know, the two things. It's be confrontational or be totally passive. And this is another option that just has such a positive effect. Um, and so all the kids can do something like this, and it really helps them feel empowered. And so those kids don't feel as victimized as they did before because they know they can be part of a solution in a really powerful way. All right. We only have just a couple seconds left. What's your what's your favorite exercise? Favorite? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I didn't expect that question coming. There's so <laughs> many. But my favorite exercises would have to be around uh, developing empathy, which I think is something that we're born with, but something that can be nurtured. And so parents can always work with their kids on just being curious about other people's feelings and experiences to wonder about it with your kids so that they begin to develop this empathy consciousness. Great. Krista Tanari, co-author with Naomi Drew of Create a Culture of Kindness in Middle School, 48 Character Building Lessons to Foster Respect and Prevent Bullying. Thank you very much. Great, great book. Thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life, young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, whether you're putting together a puzzle or building a tower, looking for a new job, or just hanging out with your kids, life is really all about connections. This week, we review a bunch of ways that you and your family can use physical connections to build stronger emotional ones. Brackets, driver set from brackets. As much as we love traditional building block-based systems, we're delighted at the ongoing trend toward more open-ended systems with unique pieces and ways of connecting them. Brackets, with a Z at the end, is one of the best, and they keep getting better. The new driver set comes with 43 pieces and directions for building 10 driving machines, including a teeter-totter, a gyrocopter, a windmill, and a dragster. But who says you have to follow directions when you can follow your imagination instead? Brackets kits are great for individual and collaborative play or for building spatial and engineering skills. They combine with other Brackets kits as well as with other systems such as Kiva planks and city blocks. They're for ages 3 and up. It costs under 25 bucks at Amazon and other retailers or Brackets.com. Magnaflex from Wowee a new and completely unique system from the makers of MIP, CHIP, Koji, and other amazing robotic toys. The majority of Magnaflex pieces are shaped like bay leaves, but don't be fooled. They snap, bend, zip, stack, and stick together thanks to the encapsulated kid-safe magnets to create animals, bugs, vehicles, wearable jewelry, and just about anything else your imagination can come up with. 
MagnaFlex kits come in a variety of themes and sizes, but the pieces, and there are some circular connectors as well, are so colorful and engaging that we're betting that you and the kids will skip the instructions and start building whatever pops into your head as soon as you open the box. And when you're done, which will be a while, the magnets make Apre Play clean up a breeze. They're for ages three and up. Prices depend on the size of the kit. They're available at Toys R Us and WowWee.com. Twangled from Mindware. Twangled is a little reminiscent of Twister. Players stand in a circle, but instead of holding hands, they're connected to their neighbor by holding on to colorful, very stretchy elastic bands. Now the fun begins. Players take turns kicking, because their hands are already occupied, a spinner that instructs them to step over or under a band of a particular color. As you can imagine, the giggling starts within seconds and continues until you've gotten yourselves hopelessly tangled up. At this point, the object of the game shifts and players have to talk each other through how to get themselves back to their untangled starting positions without letting go of the bands, of course. It's great for building visualization and problem-solving skills and is a wonderful team-building exercise since everyone has to work together to get unstuck. It's for four to eight players ages six and up. Cost under 25 bucks at mindware.orientaltrading.com. Geek and Company Chewing Gum Lab from Thames and Cosmos. Chewing gum is one of the best ways to connect two objects, after duct tape and superglue, and this chemistry-based kit gives you and your kids a great opportunity to connect with each other, literally and or figuratively, while making your own tasty gum and learning about the science of polymers. The kit comes with a 16-page manual that contains five experiments, along with all the necessary gum-related ingredients, as well as wrappers, so you can give your unused homemade treats to your friends and family. It's for ages 8 and up, cost under 20 bucks at your favorite retailer or at TamesAndCosmos.com. You can find a lot more reviews of wonderful toys and games and all sorts of other great stuff to do with your kids at our website, ParentsAtPlay.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. But don't go anywhere quite yet because, you know, there's a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of 326 hands playing Mozart. This is the sound of 10,942 hands showing appreciation. 64 hands building a house for the homeless. 142 hands swimming a triathlon. 18 hands winning the big game. And this is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. It's incredibly easy and effective. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. Find out more about this latest method of CPR at handsonlycpr.org. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting 
with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Well, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. It's great to have you here. One of the greatest gifts that parents can bestow on their children is a happy childhood. But that's sort of a fuzzy phrase. What exactly does happy childhood mean, and what does it take to raise well-adjusted children? Well, the simple answer, of course, is good parenting. But that raises a whole other fuzzy question. What is that? Well, after studying the good, the bad, and the ugly in relationships between thousands of parents and their kids, experts, one of whom is going to be a guest on today's show, have found that the most important factor successful families have in common is a spirit of cooperation. Cooperative children pay attention. They follow rules and work and play well with others. With siblings and peers, they share, they take turns in their good sports, whether they win or lose. With adults, parents, teachers, and coaches, cooperative children willingly follow directions. Now, willingness is an essential distinction here. It's one thing when children behave out of fear of being punished. It's quite another thing when they actually want to follow your direction and get along with others rather than argue, refuse, and create conflicts. Cooperation, which most kids are eager to learn, opens new dimensions of family life. In fact, it's the secret sauce that makes parenting a joy. And it all starts right after this. Come on, smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. Yeah, maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. Or maybe he's teething. Maybe it's just a phase. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. And my guest for this part of today's show is Marion Forgatch, who is one of three authors of a book called Raising Cooperative Kids, Proven Practices for a Connected, Happy Family. Marion, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you're defining a cooperative kid and whether there's a difference between cooperative and compliant or obedient? Well, the words probably mean something the same thing. That is, when you give kids directions, they, follow, they tend to follow them. And uh, cooperative, though, brings in a spirit of willing, willingness, um, a sense of we're all part of a team and we're working together. It takes more than the kid to create a cooperative spirit. I mean, the parents play an important role in this. Yeah, well, the willingness part is essential. I mean, you could, as you you talk about in the book, there's a difference between doing something because you're afraid of being punished, which would be compliant or obedient, and doing it because you're cooperating, because you're willing to do it on your own. This is something that you are an active participant in. Right. Okay. All right, so how how do we go about starting to ha- raise a cooperative child? Well, it starts early on, and but 
but the book is really geared more towards parents of from toddler stage up through the tween stage. Um, but it starts with how you communicate with your kids. Um, you communicate with words, with actions, with nonverbal expressions. And uh, when you give them directions about, say, pick up your shoes now, please, you can do it in so many different ways that um, you can generate a spirit of cooperativeness if you say it the way I just did, or if you say, pick up your shoes now. <laughs> and so uh, the book really talks about how parents can create an atmosphere, an environment, and use strategies that tend to elicit a cooperative spirit in their kids. Can you give us another example of uh, the way that we ought to do it or not do it? All of a sudden, the, the words goofus and gallant <laughs> popped into my mind from highlights. <laughs> but, you know, that that sort of thing. I mean, you know, the way that, it, it, that we may tend to do it and the way that it probably should be done that would produce better results. Well, uh, we... We have a whole chapter on um, giving good or clear directions, and that's one of the ways that we blow it the most as parents. We're stressed out, and we give an irritable direction like I just did, or we're in a hurry, so we shout up the stairs or across the house, get over here, we're in a hurry, don't you realize we're late? Whereas uh, if I were to walk up to my child, it would take a little extra time for me to, to make the effort to walk up to my child and say, put my hand on his shoulder or look in his face and say, Eric, it's time to go now. Let's go. It takes a little extra time, but I probably would have to shout at Eric six times to get him to come if I did it the first way. And what is it about that you think makes a difference? Is it that, that you're actually there face-to-face -face and it's harder to ignore you right to your face? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and one of the strategies we have in giving clear directions is when you give the direction, you do what we call stand and hold. And that is you just wait silently with a pleasant expression on your face until the child starts to move. And it's that is one of the most effective aspects of that is the stand and hold, although it's, I think, also the hardest thing for parents to do. Yeah. I mean, it, without saying anything, that's the other piece right. of it, right? Yeah, cause, and I mean, not, getting a, uh, not getting a frown on your face. Well, the temptation is to say things over and over and over again, and I, mean, it's, I imagine you're not advocating that. No, and the child is likely to argue well, why are you standing there? Or, I'll do it in a minute. I'll do it. Stop it. And and the temptation is to respond to the child, and then you're into an argument, and he who gets, or she who gets the last blow wins. Meaning what exactly? The last aversive or the last negative part of the interchange. That's, that's a big portion of our approach, is avoiding coercive interactions, interactions that are negative, that tend to escalate and get out of control. And you talk about accentuating the positive, which... Yes. So how does that work? 
one, one of the phrases that um, we like to use is shine the light on what you want to grow. And so teaching through encouragement as opposed to through punishment and correction. Have you experienced being taught through correction and punishment? Oh, probably, yeah. <laughs> I think most of us have. Um, but teaching through encouragement means that you set your kids up for success and you observe to find out what kinds of things are stumbling blocks for them that might be easy for some kids but hard for this particular child and that stumbling block you need to break down into steps that are small enough that your child is able to successfully navigate them and then notice and encourage either with words praise or tokens or rewards depending on depending on um, the difficulty of the task for example okay so you've got a, an example in the book about Kristen your five-year-old daughter who's been having a bad day and uh, you're in the kitchen unloading the dishwasher and she's having a bowl of cereal then she drops a bowl in the sink basically and it makes a bunch of noise, but it doesn't break. And so you're saying that she, the, the natural parenting reaction might be to criticize her, to say, yeah, yeah, drop that right. thing. Can't you, can't you keep a, you know, a hold on the bowl or you almost broke that? So what's the, the alternative there? Is it what, what, thank what you so did. much? Yeah, what, what she did was she picked up the bowl and she tried to, do what you would like her to do, which is to put it in the sink. Now, if you notice that, then it, it, it encourages her to do it in the future. Whereas if she did that and you criticize her, her reaction is, well, why bother to do that? Yeah, I'm just going to get but criticized. But I tried. Yeah. No, I can, very, I can see that. It's very easy to be critical, it, and we all do it. And when we're stressed or in a rush, that's when we tend to do it the most. Well, so here's the, the million-dollar question. How do you take that extra breath when you're stressed and you're in a hurry and allow yourself or force yourself, I guess might be better, to do something differently than what you would ordinarily do? That's the hardest part, it seems to me, is to be able to, to stop for one second or ten seconds and do something differently. Exactly. So um, one of the there's a couple of there's a couple of things. One is to think about what is my goal. For example, with the shoes that are in the middle of the floor that you just tripped over, and you're in a hurry and you drop stuff because you tripped over those shoes that shouldn't have been there. Do you want the shoes picked up, and do you want to have a pleasant evening with your kid? If that's your goal. Then you go, okay, cool down. <laughs> what do I want? What do I want? I want the shoes picked up. How do I do that? Oh, that's right. I go up to him and I say, Eric, pick up your shoes now, please. <laughs> now, it takes an effort. And one of the things, one of the chapters in the book is about uh, emotion regulation. And uh, that's a chapter well worth reading and that our parents particularly <laughs> tend to yep. enjoy that aspect. 
Marion Forgatch is one of three authors. The other two are Gerald Patterson and Tim Friend, and the book is called Raising Cooperative Kids, Proven Practices for a Connected, Happy Family. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're, of course, going to keep talking to Marion about cooperation and connected, happy families and how the, how we can make that happen. But I also want to f- focus exactly on what she was just talking about or just about to talk about, which was regulation of emotions. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Psst, it's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious, and if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion? After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Marion Forgatch, who's the author of Raising Cooperative Kids, Proven Practices for a Connected, Happy Family. So let's do talk about that, emotions that you mentioned before. Okay. Um, so there's two parts to paying attention to emotions. One is to recognizing your own, and one is to recognizing your kids' emotions. And most of us parents tend to be immersed in our own emotional state and tend to notice that, say, if I'm angry and shouting at my child, my child's reaction may be fear, or it may be guilt, or it may be sadness, but it may not be what mine is. So it's important for us to recognize the impact that our emotions have on our kids and also to notice our kids' emotional states so that we can join them in it and help them deal with them effectively. Okay, give us an example. You, to take us through a scenario where, where this is playing out. Well, let's see. Um, my, my, kid is, my kid is upset about something, and, and I'm in a hurry, and... Um, so I, I notice that my kid is upset, but I'm on my way out the door, and I don't really want to deal with it. So I may just kind of flick him off when I could really be more sympathetic and take a little bit extra time and respond. Okay. And does that involve just being aware of the your child's emotions and your own emotions or actually addressing something? I can I can see that you're feeling frustrated or something like that. One of the things that I did uh, years and years and years ago was I learned um, the facial action coding system that was developed by Ekman and Friesen, and then uh, further adopted and adapted by John Gottman, in which you learn to read by indicators emotion emotional expression. And actually, I put some indicators of emotions in the book so parents will have some cues of what, what, what things their kids are doing, what, it might be, what they might be feeling. Huh. Okay. 
That sounds like the the work. I, I think you said Ekman was that it. Yeah, Ekman. Yeah, I think and he was one of the the inspiration for a, a TV show a couple of years ago called Lie right, to Me. That's right, Lie to Me. Lie to Me. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was there. Actually, for a while, was an online course that you could do while that show was on the air during that during that time. A couple of years, I think they did two or three seasons. Uh, you could do that. There was. Um, I remember going, I didn't do the whole course, but I did kind of the trial things where you're supposed to, they give you four or five different facial expressions and you're supposed to say which one it is. It's it's harder than it might seem. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. But so, it's also it also helps you recognize your own feelings. Sometimes when, one of my favorite um, mixed up feelings is the fear biter. That You've seen it in little dogs that come out barking at you, yeah. wah, 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 wah. Oh, yeah. and you stomp your foot, and they run away, going, argh, argh. <laughs> but they put on a front of anger and aggression when they're really feeling afraid, and we do that a lot, both as parents and our kids do that, and it really is helpful once you get that sense of what a fear biter is doing. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let me get back to something here, which I think is an important, another distinction. We were talking about distinctions between cooperation and uh, compliance or obedience, but where do you draw the line between bribery and incentives? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Incentives are, it's kind of like the contract that you have with somebody. If you do this, you earn that. And kids, um, kids learn to earn incentives as they're developing new behavioral skills. So bribing is um, usually involves something illegal uh, and something not or not a good thing to do. And it's not really a learning kind of approach. It's getting somebody to do something that they may not want to do in the first place. Now, incentives also get people to do things that they don't want to do in the first place, maybe like um, clean your room. But it says what you need to do in order to clean your room, and it's set up as an agreement in advance between parents and kids. The more you engage your kids in this sort of thing, the more um, a spirit of of cooperation emerges. And then on the other side of that, you talked at the very beginning about punishment. Do you have something along there? If you're, if you're offering incentives to encourage somebody to clean the room, for example, do we also talk about, all right, look, if you don't get the room clean by a certain point, that X, Y, Z is going to happen, and then you get them to help come up with what those things are? Or is yeah. that do we leave that off? No, we no, we have we have a whole set of uh, negative consequences for uh, specified problem behaviors. Um, the smallest one, well, I don't know if it's the smallest one. It's timeout. Um, and by the way, Jerry Patterson, the co-author in this book, is one of the initial developers of timeout uh, for families. Um, timeout, which is five minutes of being in a quiet place, this is for kids five and up. Um, and if the kid doesn't go, which often happens, you add one minute at a time till you get to 10 minutes. 
And at 10 minutes, the child has one last choice, go to timeout for 10 minutes, or you lose a a privilege. So privilege removal is yet another um, phase in the negative consequence um, set. And that can be for small things or for large things, like a five-minute work chore Mm -hmm. um, or a 30-minute work chore, depending on what the situation is, and fines. Fines? Mm-hmm. Financial um, fines? Like, in our house, it was a quarter, a swear word. <laughs> okay. Actually, one of our kids one time came in, laid a $5 bill down <laughs> on the table, and gave it to me. <laughs> and I picked up the $5 bill, and I went out and got myself a coffee. <laughs> That's very good. But see, there now there's a, a question. I mean, the kids at some point learn to game the system. And they learn, I think, you know, they're very clever. They, they understand if you've given them something for the express purpose of having something to take away later. You know, they, they learn not to place a whole lot of value on that thing. You mean... They earned the $5, and then you took it away? Well, Actually, I think in this case, the $5 was spent. We, in, in our, in our um, incentive approach, we never take away something the kid earned. Hmm. What do you mean by that? So if, um, if the child cleaned his bedroom and earned a certain amount of allowance for it, then no matter what else he may have done, he's, he's got that coming. Or if she um, washed the dishes and um, therefore it gets to stay up 15 minutes or, or 30 minutes later, okay. even if okay. she blows it, she gets that 30 minutes. No, that's great. That's a really, really important distinction. I think people need to need to be aware of that one. Marion Forgatch is the co-author with Gerald Patterson and Tim Friend of Raising Cooperative Kids, Proven Practices for a Connected, Happy Family. Marion, thank you very much for being on the show. Very nice to have you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.